Hi there, podcast listeners. Um, this particular sermon is a special one, preached on a special occasion outside of our normal church service here at Good News. Um, I preached this sermon at the Combined Reformation Day service, which uh, happens once a year, and it's a gathering of all of the local Reformed and Presbyterian churches in the greater Hobart area, um, you know, gathered around the, the gospel that we hold in common. It's Always a great time. If you happen to be in Hobart at the end of October, any given year, I'd warmly encourage you to get along. Uh, Anyway, I've included this sermon here in our podcast. I hope it's a real encouragement and a help to you. Here it is. The trouble with getting half a dozen uh, preachers and putting them throughout your order of services, it feels like you've got six great sermons by the time you get to the sermon, doesn't it? Uh, it is a privilege to come and bring God's Word to us uh, this evening. Um, I feel that uh, you're yeah, acutely aware that you could have picked a better preacher, but you couldn't have picked a better gospel, and that's where our confidence needs to come from tonight anyway. Uh, just before we pray... Uh, May I read a couple of snippets from a letter, a very old letter, not Paul's letter to the one Corinthians, to the the Corinthians, we'll come to that shortly. Uh, May I read a few snippets from a 500-year-old letter, and you can guess who it's by, uh, by a German academic, a lecturer, a monk named Martin Luther. Uh, Now, these words that I'm going to read to you, they form the cover letter, if you like, the cover letter to his 95 theses, those 95 bullet points calling for reform in the Roman Catholic Church of his day. Because did you realise this? Before Luther pinned those theses to the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg uh, for public discussion and debate and hammering out all of the issues, Luther was a churchman. And so he followed process and he wrote them first, posted them in the mail to the relevant Archbishop. Anyway, here's how the cover letter begins. To the most reverend father in Christ and most illustrious Lord Albert, Archbishop and primate of the churches of Magdeburg and Mentz, Marcus of Brandenburg, etc. His Lord and pastor in Christ, most gracious and worthy of all fear and reverence, Jesus, the grace of God be with you and whatsoever it is and can do, spare me, most reverend father in Christ, most illustrious prince, if I, the very dregs of humanity, have dared to think of addressing a letter to the eminence of your sublimity. As letter openings go, I actually wonder, and if you know the answer to this, is there a Gmail plugin that I can get that will convert my emails to that kind of language? (laughs) Folks, there are two things that I'd like us to bear in mind as we come to God's Word this evening and as we celebrate tonight. Number one is this, and this is for some of us today who perhaps wonder to ourselves why. Why on earth are we here this evening to celebrate of all things. Wonder to ourselves, surely the Reformation, if it was nothing else, it amounts to a tragic moment of splintering, of fracturing, of division through the very church of God on earth. And aren't we, Christian people, shouldn't we be the first to celebrate and champion, rather, unity and togetherness and and forgiveness and order and cooperation? 
have we really drifted so far from our spiritual moorings in the one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all? But no, friends, I begin with Luther's cover letter there, do you see? To remind us that the Reformation began October the 31st, 1517, not with angry, divisive crankiness that got a little bit out of hand and then spiralled out of control in the days and weeks and months and years and decades and centuries to come. No, 500 years ago, almost to the day, a humble, sincere monk who could, I think, honestly, I think he's being sincere there, honestly describe himself as the very dregs of humanity, wrote to his superiors to plead the case that the saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ not be obscured any longer, not be forgotten, not be eclipsed, because that is exactly what was happening on his watch, on their watch. And men and women will slide into hell ignorant of the gospel, in fact, duped by a false hope, unless we change course here. What a dreadful thing it is, writes Luther a few paragraphs on, what a dreadful thing it is, if while the gospel is passed over in silence, the bishop permits nothing but the noisy outcry of indulgences to spread among his people and bestows more care on these than on the gospel. So number one, why are we here? Because we want to celebrate, I trust, a moment in time when the gospel of Christ finally re-emerged with saving clarity for the souls of men and women, a heritage that we stand in, that we enjoy, that we've just inherited and want a champion in our own day and more on that. But number two, very quickly, second thing I'd like us to bear in mind, I just want to ask you, brothers and sisters, have you ever tried to picture uh, life and ministry and especially outreach and mission uh, evangelism back in 16th century Europe as we hear the stories and watch the little characters in the video and and what have you with their uh, dedication? Because I've got to tell you, can you imagine life in a society where not only everyone believed in God. Can can you imagine living in a society like, not only everyone believed in God, but everyone turned up to church, everyone sat under ministry of some sort or other, where great swathes of the population actually got worked up and excited and had opinions about heaven and hell, cared about their eternal destinies... Uh, In fact, more than that, where ordinary people would pay vast sums of their meagre income, gave it lavishly to the church, and why? In the hope of smoothing things over between them and God. Can you imagine living in a society like that? I can buy my forgiveness with a a letter of indulgence and so I'll shell out my hard-earned dollars for it. Papal indulgences are being carried about, wrote Luther, same letter. Papal indulgences are being carried about for the building of St Peter's, that's where the money went, the Basilica in Rome, you can go and see it today, Uh, for the building of St Peter's. In respect of these indulgences, I grieve at the very false ideas which the people conceive from them 
and which are spread abroad in common talk on every side. Unhappy souls believe that if they buy letters of indulgences, they're sure of their salvation. And they believe furthermore that so great is the grace that they buy with these indulgences, so great is the grace that there is no sin so great that it may be pardoned. And again, that by these indulgences, a man is freed from all punishment and guilt. Folks, all I want us to remember as we turn to prayer now and as we think about the Reformation back then and as we pray for Reformation in our own day is this, the common condition of the human heart in every age is one of spiritual darkness. Apart from the reforming and regenerating light of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from him, there is darkness and that was true of Luther's age. And it's true of ours. And let's remember this, it's true of our own hearts as well. So let's come before God in prayer. Please pray with me. Father God in heaven, we confess that so very often we look around at our world and we wonder where lies the power for reformation in our day? We hear of these dramatic moments in church history and we think to ourselves, well, when's our turn? Father, we boldly come before you this evening to ask three things. Would you please open our eyes to see the plight of men and women around us in our day? Would you secondly open our eyes afresh to the saving power and glory and beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospel? And thirdly, our Father, would you please expand our sense that we live amongst loved ones, friends, colleagues, family, people who have either lost touch with the gospel or who have never been in touch with it. Lord, may we learn to live for Christ's glory in the midst of a world that sorely needs that same Reformation gospel, the only gospel that there is, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luther's unhappy souls uh, threw away their money hand over fist, uh, clutching after some kind of sense of being free before this almighty God, before the Lord, uh, free from guilt and from the fear of punishment, free from regret, desperately seeking some kind of assurance in their spiritual lives. Whereas by contrast, I wonder if you noticed it as Helen read 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 it to us a few moments ago, by contrast... Paul, do you see, Paul felt no need at all to chase or grasp or clutch after that. Why is that? Because he held freedom already before God in his very hands and he had poise before the men and women in his life within his very grasp already and he would have you enjoy the same today. So I know we didn't read this verse but at the very beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 9 we read Paul saying, am I not free? Or in the verse that Helen began with, uh, chapter 9 verse 19, I am free and belong to no man. I suggest, by the way, if you've got a Bible in your pew, you grab it and uh, read along with me Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians, you're going to need it. Uh, So, folks, here's where I'm going. I put it to us this evening that Paul's sense of spiritual freedom stems from, emerges from his embrace of Christ in the very same gospel that we share, 
In that sense, there's nothing special about Paul. The same, go- the same gospel that Luther helped Europe come to share in the 1500s. And I mean to convince you tonight and perhaps remind you, most of us, maybe even persuade some of us for the first time to find your freedom in Christ. Where assurance and relief and rest lie waiting to be found and enjoyed and held on to in this life and into the next. But I mean to do more because I feel that in keeping with the spirit of this anniversary that we're here for tonight, I intend to call us to action as well. That, I think, has to be the tone of a Reformation Sunday sermon, doesn't it? Uh, Now, how does that mess with freedom? Well, I'm convinced that Paul's freedom in Christ, his assurance and confidence, that sort of weightlessness that he seems to experience before the Lord of heaven and men of earth, his freedom drove his efforts to leave a dent in the world for the name of Christ. Are you hearing me clearly there? Without his freedom, the most successful missionary that the world has ever seen would not have made a dent. And I reckon that comes straight from 1 Corinthians 9, I hope to show it to you. Uh, So let me be bold and say that if I desire, if you desire that our lives contribute to lasting spiritual renewal for our world, reformation in our day, revival around our city, then there is nothing more pressing than that we grasp and go forth in the freedom that we find in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Come with me, friends, to 1 Corinthians. We'll pick it up at chapter 8, actually, because that's where we set the scene. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1, because here comes the issue that frames our text in chapter 9. Truly bizarre to our ears, I suspect, but here it is. I don't know when the last time you read 1 Corinthians is, but, um, well, see what you make of it. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Now, says Paul, here's the issue that frames our text in chapter 9. Now, about food... Sacrifice to idols. Or verse 4, have a look down there. So then, about eating food, sacrifice to idols. And you might be wondering to yourself, why on earth would Christians need instruction about eating food, sacrifice to idols? Uh, But the plot thickens, actually, where uh, verse 10 imagines this situation of, verse 10, people seeing Corinthian Christians eating in an idol's temple. Is it fair to say, that sounds pretty bizarre to our modern ears, doesn't it? And I know what you're thinking about these crazy Corinthian Christians, or at least let me hazard a guess at what's on your mind. They sound, don't they, they sound ridiculous. I mean, what kind of Christian... um, What kind of worshipper of the one true God would even darken the door of an actual idol's temple, let alone going along there for some kind of, I don't know, what what is it, some kind of party or feast or um, who knows what kind of event, they're eating in an idol's temple. And if you're thinking that, well, Paul absolutely agrees with you, as you'll be pleased to know, but he bites his tongue for two whole chapters, which is probably a pastoral lesson in itself. We don't have time for that now. Because in their muddle, these dear Christians, they have managed to grasp one very important thing 
with piercing clarity. And I wonder, friends, if it's the one thing that we need to hear in all this. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. Please read along there with me. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. So Paul's saying to these Corinthians there, you're right in this much, O Corinthians, that you live your lives in deference to the one true God and that's it. You live your life in and through the one Lord Jesus Christ and don't let anyone else call the shots. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 1, am I not free? Now friends, why do I say I reckon we need to hear this? in our day? Well, to be blunt, it's because it takes far less than an actual idol or an actual temple of an actual rival to the Lord God of heaven and earth, far less than that to make me shrink back and bend my life and cower away from what I believe that the Lord Jesus is calling me to in my life. Can you relate to that? I don't have anything like the Corinthian pluck and courage, their guts and, well, bravado, but their boldness in the Lord. I mean, if you frown at me at the door, I think twice at what I'm going to do next week. (laughs) Ed Welch captures it very neatly, I think, Christian um, psychologist Ed Welch, when he says this, he says, regarding other people, regarding other people, our problem is that we need them for ourselves more than we love them for the glory of God. The task God sets for us, he says, is to need them less and love them more. So I'll ask you, brothers and sisters, do you know yourself to be free in the Lord? Do you stand by His approval and His approval alone? Do you stand in the blissful awareness in your life that in Christ He is pleased with me, I am the apple of His eye in Christ as an adopted and loved son or daughter at the cost of Christ's blood. There, friends, there is the measure of my assurance, the infinite worth of the Son of God given for me. I am free and not pretty girls or cranky bosses or petty rules or unreasonable pastors, I know that that happens sometimes, or ministry leaders or the misbehaviour of my own children and what she might think as she watches on as I try to deal with all that, not the disapproval of my dad or the disbelief of your boyfriend at what you are or are not prepared to do. Nothing constrains a Christian who knows their freedom before the Lord. Nothing will dissuade us. Nothing will distract us or divert us. 
1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. Am I not free? You see the freedom Paul stands in? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? You see, but we're a funny bunch, aren't we? We're a funny bunch because let me play the other side for a moment. I think in other respects, we rather fancy freedom very much and we, and we enjoy certain aspects of freedom. We exercise certain freedoms very liberally indeed, don't we? Isn't that the culture of our day? And we're certainly children of it. So when uh, James Joyce, for example, wrote that his heart's desire was to, to discover the mode of life whereby my spirit could express itself in unfettered freedom. James Joyce, portrait of the artist as a young man. Uh, Joyce, he meant it in a thoroughly irreligious sense, if you've read any of his works, thoroughly irreligious. He wasn't writing to describe the church. In fact, uh, it was a novel all about breaking free, breaking away from church and from religion and from uh, expectations and social constraints and family pressures and what his dad thought and free to discover that mode of life or of art whereby your spirit could express itself in unfettered freedom. And to be sure, that we, we see that kind of spirit in our day, don't we? Out there, so to speak, in our festivals or art or culture or the, uh, the advertising even of our day that we just see a thousand times as we kind of scroll through seeing what our happy friends are doing. But without meaning to be too harsh, isn't that thirst for freedom very much a spirit amongst us? Can we see it in here as well? Um, we long, some of us, we long for independence. We long for freedom. We long, some of us, perhaps to be free of depending on mum and dad at one end of life, to be free of needing them quite so much. Perhaps we wish at the other end of life, we wish we still had what it takes to be free from depending, from being a burden to one another as our bodies age and we come to resent, maybe, our loss of freedoms in that regard. Others of us, we long to release ourselves from the constraints of work and career, to, to live the retirement dream, some of us, to travel the country free at last from obligations with no place to be and at last no one to answer to or pick up after. We long to get out from under the bank, others of us, from the just relentless repayment obligations and, and, and the kids are growing up so fast and now they just know that we need some more bedrooms and, and they need this and it costs that. Or we long to be free of her influence of him as my boss. Can't wait to get out of this school or that relationship entirely, which so suffocates me. Or it, it happens in church, friends, free of this roster or that ministry team or the pigeonhole that I've just been wedged into here at church and unfairly and unhealthily boxed within and I'm never going to be free as long as I'm a part of this church. It's stifling, it's stealing a piece of my life and my soul as I suffer under these constraints. I'm not free. Can you relate to any of those, friends? See, Paul, strangely, Paul, he doesn't seem to suffer that kind of bruise to his freedom and I want to know why not, I want to know how, how does he do it? Paul doesn't seem to suffer this kind of, this, this bruise on his freedom. He's a strange creature. 
In fact, he seems to be able to go entirely the other direction. He goes a step further. Uh, we don't have time to delve right into it now, but Paul claims, Paul claims two things for himself, actually, on top of his freedom. Number one, he has this crystal uh, clarity about where he's going. He calls it several things. He calls it a blessing and a crown and a prize. It is this liberating clarity of where he's headed and what's coming next, this beautiful assurance. The second thing he has, number two, whereas we suffer all of this hassle and hang up and hold up to our freedom and everything seems to bruise us, all of these along the way, Paul goes the other way. And Paul seems to be able to proudly and confidently stand not just on his freedom, but on his rights as a Christian. seems to be able to assert his rights and he just won't budge. Have a look at chapter 9 verse 4 as we now move toward uh, where we're headed. Chapter 9 verse 4, don't we have the right to food and drink? He means from you Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 6, is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? And then verse 9, and leading up through verse 9, he cites the Bible as in God's own word at these Corinthians and tells them, because of the Bible, you guys owe me. I even have a claim on your money. So verse 11, if we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? Paul's amazing, isn't he? Verse 12, can you see the first word there of verse 12? But. And friends, it is in this but that lies that driving force for Paul's missionary effectiveness in the world. I believe it is in this but that we will find the power and the flame for reform and even revival, God willing, in our day, because it is in this but that we truly grasp, I think, the glory of the gospel and the true sense of liberty and freedom that we are meant to enjoy as Christians. Your freedom before the Lord and among men and women of Hobart is not without purpose, Christian. Please watch this but very closely. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 12, halfway through, but we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Have a look down at verse 19. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Brothers and sisters in the Lord tonight, do you know yourself free in the Lord, completely at ease in his presence? The kind of freedom through the Lord Jesus Christ, confident and comfortable in your own skin, bold I approach the eternal throne, a liberating power that has lifted you from the burden of proving yourself to God or anyone else for that matter, do you know that kind of freedom? Do you know your significance before the Lord, your worth and value before the Lord as a gift from Him in the Gospel? Do you know yourself so cherished and loved and valued and dear children of the living God, then, if you do, 
then, dear friends, you know the freedom to both set aflame the hearts of the men and women of Hobart to find the life and relief and freedom that God would have them enjoy in Christ. And you know that very freedom needed to boldly bring the gospel to them. Do you see it? Are you living in that freedom, brothers and sisters? Because I put it to you now that a Christian freedom that exists merely for itself is no Christian freedom at all. It has neither understood itself nor has it any capacity to benefit our world, to shine for Christ's glory and for the salvation of the lost. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. Let's have a look there, verse 19. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone. Why? To win as many as possible. To the Jews. I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I'm not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. So let me ask it like this, brothers and sisters, for what or for whom has Christ set you free? Could it be the reason... Uh, Could it be that the reason that we look back at the Reformation and and then we look around for Reformation in our day but don't find it? Could it be that the reason that we look for Reformation in our day but don't find it? Could it be that the reason that we look around at friends and family and colleagues and loved ones, somewhere between disinterested and disengaged with the things of the Lord altogether, could it be that the reason, or at least a pretty big reason isn't because we haven't grasped the gospel for ourselves. Oh, we've grasped it for ourselves. But because we have not bent the freedom that we enjoy in the gospel fully to the task of seeking the lost to win. Rebecca Manley Pippet uh, warns us, uh, she once warned us in one of her beautiful books, she says, we must not become, as John Stott puts it, rabbit hole Christians. Have you heard this one? It's marvellous. Um, and then she, then she gives an example from, from student life. But I don't, I don't think it's so hard to translate to a grey nomad or young mum or, or me and my swimming buddies or whatever. Have a listen. He, she says, we must not become, as John Stott puts it, rabbit hole Christians. When I worked among students, the form it would take is this. A Christian student, a Christian student, leaves his Christian roommate in the morning and scurries through the day to lectures, only to search frantically for a Christian to sit by, an odd way to approach a mission field. Uh, Thus he proceeds from lecture to lecture. When dinner comes, he sits with other Christians at one huge table and thinks, what a witness! From there he goes to his all-Christian Bible study and he might even take in a prayer meeting where the Christians pray for the non-believers on his floor. But what luck, 
he was able to live on the only floor with 17 Christians. <laughs> then at night, he scurries back to his Christian roommate. Ah, safe. He made it through the day and his only contacts with the world were those mad dashes to and from Christian activities. Am I calling you, folks? Is, is Pippet calling us? Is Paul calling us to a hard way to live? Does it take grit? Will it mean hard decisions? Will it mean forgoing a whole bunch of pleasures? Now, Paul's no fool about that. Take a look at verse 24. Verse 24, do you not know, he says, that in a race all the runners run but only one gets the prize and then he says run in such a way as to get the prize run in such a way as to get the prize you you, you can see there can't you the prize is not salvation itself he's, he's absolutely clear about where his salvation comes from entirely by grace from well The prize is not salvation itself for him, is it? It's not your salvation, it's theirs. Run, Christian, in such a way as to get the prize. Folks, today we look back 500 years to one brief moment and to the life of one brave man, a man who loved Jesus, who wanted the men and women of Germany, not just Germany, all of Europe, to come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospel, to the same liberating discovery that Luther had made and it took him years to make it. And so I ask you this evening, how will people look back on us, on our generation, on your life, knowing that we are men and women and boys and girls here tonight as well who claim that the gospel can and has set us free. Maybe we need to just answer the simpler question. How will the next generation, how will our kids' generation remember us? Those people who one day, soon in the scheme of things, will have the task of showing up at our funerals, of standing up and speaking at our gravesides, he did everything he could to share the gospel. She did everything she could to share the gospel of Christ, to save some, to win the lost. She ran in such a way as to get the prize. Will our kids say that about us, do you reckon? Because if they couldn't say it, Well, rest assured, they're not going to be saying it about us in 500 years' time, are they? Let's close with these words of Luther. Uh, He didn't write them in 1517, he wrote them in 1521. That's for a few years' time, perhaps. A Christian, wrote Luther, a Christian is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. A Christian is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we can't do it. Tonight we remember one man, not Luther, not even Paul, 
Father, tonight we remember the Lord Jesus Christ. We remember what he gave up for us. We remember the man who, the one man, who set aside the glory of heaven to walk the road to the cross, who set aside his boundless freedom to be quite literally nailed to one place and that for us. Not because, not because he couldn't get out of it, but because it was the one place we needed him to be. And right there, oh God, we know we can't do it. And we confess openly before you tonight, our Father, that if our salvation depended on our successes, even just our successes in outreach and evangelism, even just our willingness, then we'd be sunk. We'd have drowned countless times over, but God, it does not, and so we are not sunk. Instead, in your grace, we float effortlessly and forever on the grace of our Lord Jesus and what pleasant and warm waters they are, our gracious Father. Father, thank you that we have discovered in your grace such a wonderful freedom to invite others into, to come and join us in. We know, Father, that your love for the people of Hobart, it's greater even than our love for them. Your lavish grace is deeper and it is richer and warmer than ever we'd show to sinners like us and to a world like ours. And so lastly, Father, we ask, awaken please, would you, our hearts to the cause of Christ, that ours might be lives spent responding to your grace in thanks, in bending our freedoms to his glory for the salvation of the lost. Lord God, we pray for revival in our time and in our city. And so we pray for reform in our own hearts and lives and actions and churches and programs and traditions and the ways I like to do things or our habits, our ruts. Father, use, would you please, use our creativity, use our God-given talents, use our resources for Christ. Father, bend our preferences, our desires, even for how church ought to be done or how this ministry would better suit me, our pleasant refuges in life. Yes, Father, even our recreation. Our eternal God, as generations to come, look back and remember our day. May they not remember us and our name and our glory, but may they remember the Christ in whom we believe and for whose glory we gave it all in your strength. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.